Hello and welcome to another episode of Change One Thing, the show where we explore if tomorrow will really be what tomorrow will be. Hi, it's Lani and it's great to have you with us again. Today on the podcast, I have with me James Mullins, an Associate Professor at Deakin University's Institute for Intelligent Systems Research and Innovation. James is an applied robotics engineer with a background in medical, industrial and first responder robots. He has designed, built and supported robots for Australia's law enforcement and emergency services community. He's also the Chief Technical Officer at Flame Systems. With over 20 years experience as a firefighter himself, James was a key player in designing Flame Trainer, a virtual reality and augmented reality system for firefighters. James is passionate about providing technology solutions and the ethical, social and personal implications of their introduction. This conversation really shines the light on a world with robots, a world that is not too far away. I hope you find my chat with James as engaging as I did. Let's get into it. Change One Thing with Associate Professor James Mullins. Enjoy. Well, welcome, James. Let's talk robots. Yeah, have you, let's. <laughs> have you always been fascinated with robotics? And as a young boy, did you sort of envision working in this field? Yeah, well, funnily enough, I can't quite remember it, but apparently in, in grade two in primary school, uh, my parents tell me that I wanted to be a, a part-time robot builder. Um, and I believe it was part-time robot builder, part-time clay sculptor or something, and, and the, the sculpting didn't quite take off, but the, the robotics certainly did. Yeah, I'm not sure, I think. <laughs> That was pretty cool as a kid. I know as a kid my favourite robot movie was uh, Short Circuit's Johnny Five. I absolutely loved that movie. Have we come yeah. a long way from that, oh, look, that in terms of to, robots? To me as a, as a young child that was a documentary so I used <laughs> to watch that and uh, there was a, a 1980s movie made in Australia called Malcolm about someone that robbed banks using robots and I don't condone that at all obviously. <laughs> but, uh, you know, obviously all the Terminator series and things like that, certainly the 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 pop culture really defines people. So, you know, Star Wars, Star Trek, that kind of stuff helps, you know, science fiction helps to define where we see the future yes. and, and it's certainly predictive in, in many ways around where technology goes. And I, I think it's an interesting question to decide whether or not that drives innovation because I guess all the engineers um, aspire to build that kind of tech or whether it, it, it's um, the other way around and engineers are really um, pushing back into pop culture now I think as well. Yeah, it could be a little bit of a little bit of both, perhaps. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. Look, and and certainly, there's a, a lot in sci-fi that quite hasn't that hasn't quite got there yet, I guess. But uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see. Do you have robots that can rob banks just quietly? I do. Well, no, you no, do. We, uh, no, no. Uh, <laughs> hang on, is this thing on? Uh, no. So we uh, we actually build robots for police and military. So we've sort of gone the uh, complete opposite to that, and not uh, the bank robbing. Not the bank robbing. Oh, we, we we work on the other side, and, and it's it's been great working in that space. So you've got a background in medical, industrial, and first responder robots. Yeah. Can you give us an example? Um, for our listeners of each types of these robots and what they do? Well, I, I guess I'll start, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the history of, of how this evolved. So a lot of technologies are funded 
by military and, and police requirements and then filter down into medical and industrial uses. So uh, probably um, over over 10 years ago now, we started work on some, some robots that could be used for clearing landmines and, and working on the humanitarian side of, of um, landmine reduction and and this was sort of during the war in Iraq and Afghanistan and a lot of roadside injuries to soldiers and, and the public as well. So we developed a robot that we could uh, remotely uh, neutralise or, or, or make safe a landmine or a roadside bomb um, using a, a technology called haptics, and that's force feedback. So it enables a person to, to put their hand in a glove effectively, uh, reach out using their hand and control a robot that might be a kilometre away and that robot can touch and feel and poke and oh, prod. Oh, wow. And, you know, you, we can literally pick something up, shake it, brush hand off a landmine without detonating it, um, cut the red wire because, as we all know from the movies, it's always the red wire. <laughs> Is it the red or the blue? Always the red. Always so, the red. Yeah, okay, I'll keep that in red. mind just in case I'm ever in, <laughs> exactly. in that and, uh, uh, scenario. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so that technology really defined and, and was world-leading technology for, for that field. But then that technology is translated down into the police forces, so the same sort of similar technology in, in use there, and then into medical. So I've worked on it uh, with a team at Deakin looking at remote ultrasound, for example. So the same technology enable, allows us to perform an ultrasound anywhere in Australia from anywhere in Australia um, and touch and feel the patient, see the patient in 3D as if they're in front of you. So, the, so the, you could be doing an ultrasound on someone in Perth. Yeah, you could have and a specialist in Melbourne performing an ultrasound on someone in the middle of, of, of the Northern Territory on, oh, a, wow. on a cattle station, for example. Um, That's so, amazing. I, I didn't know. I never thought of that. I guess I like to say that sort of the technology is no longer the limiting factor in a lot of what we do. It's about just the ideas and inspiration to create these new technologies and, and really come up with something new. There's, there's plenty of ideas out there that could be realised quite easily these days. Mm, and I guess like even with medical, a lot of the times now when you go in and have surgery, like often it's, you know, a little robot that um, that is assisting the surgeons as yeah, well. Yeah, there's some great uh, medical robots out there. And in fact, that's another project that's been happening at Deakin is around instrumenting those robots so that a surgeon can feel. So at the moment, the robots are fantastic, but they can't feel the difference in tissue. So if you're mm. trying to remove a tumour, for example, you can't feel, and, and surgeons do this now, they feel the difference between cancerous tissue and, and healthy tissue using their senses, their, their, their touch. Uh, the mm. robots can't do that yet, but over the next five to ten years, I'm sure they will be able to. So with the use of what you mentioned before, haptics, which mm. is a word I've just learnt today. <laughs> we need to try and learn um, one, one word every day, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, what? So can you explain haptics again? And that is what you've just been talking about. So haptics is all about touch. So mm -hmm. haptics comes from the Greek word touch. And if anyone's played a, a racing game down at the arcade, the you know Daytona or something like that, where you've got a steering wheel <laughs> that provides force feedback as you're going around the corner, that's that's kind of what haptics is. It's it's giving you a force that doesn't really exist, mm. but it's providing that force feedback to the user so they think that they're touching something. Yes, okay. And yes, even like we've all played Mario Kart. Yeah, you know, the rumble it. packs and yeah. all that sort of stuff. And, and, you know, haptics is sort of starting to come into phones. If you read some of the marketing literature around phones, when you get a touch the screen, you'll feel a little click. And, and that's a, a haptic response as well. Okay, yes. Um, now, in regards to advanced motion simulators for mm -hmm. 
military use or any other use. Can you explain your research into these? Yeah, look, I'm, I'm part of a, a broader research team looking at all sorts of things and, and using robots for motion platforms. So traditionally we use these things called Stuart platforms, very expensive sort of um, look like a spider kind of thing where you sit on top and it can rock and roll you probably around 10 degrees. So it gives you a little bit of motion, maybe 20 degrees, side to side, up and down kind of thing. Like a mechanic bull sort a of? A bit like, yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's straight where my mind exactly. went. Exactly. <laughs> so that, that's kind of, you know, the state of the art up until a couple of years ago. And, and certainly, uh, once again, Deacon's been looking at this new technology using industrial robots effectively. So robots that traditionally would have been used to manufacture cars. Mm-hmm. And we, we basically strap a person to the end of these and it's probably a little bit more complex than that there's a lot of safety involved but we can pull upwards of 6g so six times the force of gravity we can put you upside down we can give you a real hard time so if you're if we're simulating a, a military vehicle or a race car or a helicopter or a plane and you roll the vehicle over you will literally be upside down so the mechanical bulls can't do that um, you end <laughs> up upside quite. down on a mechanical ball <laughs> but you, you can't do it uh you know, so it's sort of just picking the person up, like it's not. It's not yeah. A there's whole a there's a seat on the end. There's a cockpit, such. and basically okay. you build the cockpit of, of whatever you're simulating, say a race yep. car or a helicopter, and you put it on the end of this robot. The the trainee thinks that they're in this cockpit mm. and they're driving, racing, flying uh, as if they were in a real vehicle. So do you know what it's like to crash a like a race car or a oh, helicopter? We've, we've Have you been in there? We've crashed a lot of things. <laughs> so, yeah. But the, the first use of this technology was helicopter simulation. So I guess I may know how to fly a helicopter. I haven't tried it in the real world. <laughs> you know how to crash a helicopter. Certainly crashed <laughs> helicopters many a times and jets and all sorts of stuff, yeah. Do any sort of like general public get to have a go at these? Like I know sometimes at events you see the little virtual reality yeah. type um, goggles that you put on, but in terms of these big sort of um, robotics that you're working on. Yeah, look, it's amazing what happens behind closed doors in the in the research labs yeah. and R&D facilities around the world and, and Australia is no different. And I think, you know, Australia really is leading the way in a number of these technologies. But come back to your question, the public, we certainly, mm. uh, you know, come to the open days and, and come and see and we open up the labs and, and, <laughs> and people can come and have a go. If I'm to give you a call and say, James, can I come and crash a robot? I'm sure it's we can come do a, yeah, <laughs> I'm sure we can get you into Can I it. crash a helicopter? Can I, yeah, oh, wow, okay. Yeah, that's probably where the big money is in entertainment, yeah. I think. So <laughs> we've probably been working the wrong spaces all these years. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. Um, now, you helped design something called Flame Trainer. Hmm. What is this and how does that work? So I guess this is a, a technology that combines a couple of my passions. So I've been a firefighter for 25 years in, in Victoria here. And this is a technology that enables us to place firefighters in um, virtual environments, um, car crashes, car fires, uh, building fires, uh, ship fires, whatever we can think of, we can build in the virtual environment. But we have a number of supporting technologies. So we can heat the person up um, to simulate their their exposure to, mm. to the fire, depending on how close they are and their position above ground and things like that. And then we have a hose line uh, that uses a real firefighting uh, branch or nozzle that enables them to squirt the water um, and they get the jet reaction or the kickback force of that hose. So it's, it's, it's a workout. So people come out of this system sweating. Um, you know, It's a system designed so that we can put trainee firefighters into unique situations that they might only see once or twice in their career 
or do that repetitive training that's very expensive, uh, environmentally unfriendly or, or dangerous um, repetitively so they can get those skill sets up. Yeah, and I guess you're getting all their physiological sensors firing so they learn how to sort of curb that exactly. um, when yeah. they're in that, you know, so we see, to the moment. We, we see it makes a big difference in sort of their muscle control and muscle memory of, of how to fight a fire, but we're also putting them in situations that they don't see very often and we want people to make mistakes in, in this virtual environment. We want them to learn from these mistakes and, and push reset and go again. So, you know, traditionally in the real world you, you don't get too many second chances but in VR that's that's the real benefit is we can put you into these scenarios a hundred times until you get it right. <laughs> yeah, okay. And do you obviously get to trial the the flame trainer yourself and having that fire um, fighting background, does that help you a little bit in virtual reality? Yeah, look, I'm a big kid, so I try everything. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so certainly the background helps. And and once again, we've we've got a team and this is a technology that's spun out into a company um, so that you can that you can take a number of these sort of concepts that they build in the research labs and, and spins them out as companies. And, and Flame now is supplying this, this technology all around the world. So clients in Europe, America, New Zealand, all over Australia that are using this to train firefighters. So it's really exciting to see something come full range from a concept in the lab all the way through to a commercial product. Yeah, wow. And it's really combining to your passions i guess isn't it yeah yeah my, my look I've, as i said i've I'm a third generation firefighter been in in the fire industry i guess for for 25 years or, or realistically all my life i grew up riding the fire truck with dad when i was five and unfortunately you can't do that kind of thing anymore um so how do we give kids and, and people experiences so that they might decide to do firefighting and become yeah. a volunteer or or join the fire service when they're older um yeah. how, how do you do that these days and and virtual reality is another enabler of that kind of experience yeah right well you rode around in the fire truck i got dropped to school in the ambulance so well, look, there you go yeah, yeah. <laughs> things and, that happen in the country and, uh. and certainly <laughs> this technology really is about um you know medical training as well how do you train people to experience um road crash and and all mm. those things that you will see how do you train people for that and virtual reality is a great yeah great use case for that and so you've been in a really intense fire situation i assume being yep. a firefighter for um 20 years or so you were saying and then stepping into that virtual reality suit is it mm. a suit as such yeah yes. look the firefighters wear pretty much the same gear that you would, you would wear at the fire so yeah but inside that has heat pads that heat you up. We've got all the same equipment that you hold in your hands. So that sort of training and muscle memory kicks in and we just want to mm. give you that experiential type stuff. So some people might wait 10 years before they see a certain type of car accident or a certain type yeah. of bushfire. Uh, or they, depending on where they are in the state, they might not see it at all. Um, you know, gas, uh, gas bullet fires and things like that. Uh, electric vehicles is a good example. We're going to see more and more electric vehicles on the roads. Mm. How do we train people to fight fires in them and how are they different to petrol-powered cars or diesel-powered cars? So yeah. we can give you all that experience, hopefully, before you see it in the real world. So having done both, is it quite similar? Like being in the VR, are you like, yep, this is very yeah. similar? Or are you sort of like, mm, in the real situation, I'm still, you know, like you're still further push to the test, I guess, a little bit. Oh, look, it, nothing beats the real world, obviously, <laughs> but we're trying to bring the heart rate up and get people making mistakes and, and really working hard in the virtual world um, so that, you know, we, we use the, 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 the term, you know, train virtually, experience reality. It's really about putting people in that real situation as real as possible using 
you know, current technology, I guess. But we find that you know, firefighters around the world are using it. They're using it because they see that it is as close as they can get to the real world um, safely, I guess. This episode is presented by Deakin University. You can find all of the show notes and other great content related to this chat at disruptor.deakin.edu.au or find us on socials at Deakin Research. Robots for law enforcement, what sort of research have you done in this sort of space? Yeah, so once again, sort of um, technology coming out of Deakin, we've got a good good team working in this space and this is sort of robots that are used for for police um things like uh, bomb response um hostage negotiation um siege resolution things like that so these are robots ranging from small the size of a, um, a box of tissues all the way up to um you know a, a, a motorbike size or a bit bigger than a four-wheel drive motorbike sort of size with tracks and arms and all sorts of things on them that they can punch through walls, they can go and open doors, they can open cars, um, open the, the boot or open doors of cars and that sort of mm. stuff. And, and, you know, these robots have been used by police around Australia and I think we believe they're the only Australian-made robots that are in service with police. And some of our robots have been shot, some of them have been surrendered to, so it's really interesting to work with police and understand their challenges and their needs and, and build technologies that can assist them. Yeah, okay. And so how do you ever see like a future with actual robot police, like where they're sort of yeah. being pulled over and there's, you know, police robots uh, walking around? Like how yeah. far are we off something like that that we've seen in some of the sci-fi movies? Well, look, I think we are quite a fair way. Um, you know, the, the technology is evolving quite quickly, but if we looked at the sci-fi movies of, of the 80s and 90s, I guess, um, you know, it's, it's, it's robots are really hard to build. They're really challenging. <laughs> Um, our environments aren't built for for the robots of, of today, um, and there's some amazing stuff happening, obviously. And and as I said before, it's mainly being driven by military applications that then filter down into mm. into the home. But um, I, I guess if I had a dollar for every time someone said, "If you know, build me a robot <laughs> to 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 do the dishes or do the housework." I'd be rich, and I guess that's perhaps where uh, well, that's my robots doing right with do. their vacuum cleaners, <laughs> and uh, and that's what a dishwasher's for, right? So yeah. Um, so can you do you think there'll be a time where we have just sort of robots walking around with us humans, and or a time where robots are doing things for us? Can say sort of, um, can you make me a sandwich? And they'll you know get yeah. a thing out of the fridge and not sort of break down exactly what they need to do, but they'll be sort of intelligent. So that's a real AI high level yeah. control stuff. And, yeah. and short answer is yes. <laughs> um, you know we're we're seeing now robots are starting to go into the delivery service. So we're going to start to see more and more robots running around on our footpaths delivering. <gasps> Uber delivering. robot. Uber Eats will be robots. And, you know, cars is a good example of that. We're starting to see that autonomous cars really can drive everywhere and are quite safe and, and you mm. know, I guess, you know, will our kids uh, ever drive? And probably the answer is no, I would suggest. Oh, wow, so as in? Yeah, I think in the next 10 to 20 years we'll start to see that a lot of cars are coming out that, generally most people wouldn't touch the steering wheel. Mm. Um, and it will be quite hard to crash cars into each other, won't it, I guess, if that's yeah, the case because yeah. they'll stop themselves. Look, when we get to a position where all cars are autonomous and robotic, that's yeah. where we've got cars travelling within a few centimetres of each other at high speeds and moving and manoeuvring. Um, 
improving our road utilisation, that that'd be fantastic. But the problem is, is that transition period where you've got people driving that aren't quite as quick in their responses as mm. the robots. How do you integrate? And you know, that's where all the research is at the moment about how you put autonomous cars on a road with people. Yeah. Uh, if we had roads that were just autonomous, it would be much easier. Yeah, wow, that's fascinating to think about, isn't it? That, yeah, the next generation might not actually have to sort of steer the car or, Yeah, imagine you know. all the productivity will improve <laughs> just kicking back, reading the yeah. newspaper on the laptop. Watch TV. Watch TV. driving. Yeah, yeah, have a snooze. <laughs> be so able to get on your phone. Everyone will be much more rested, <laughs> I'm sure. We don't condone that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh, that's just, it's so interesting to think about and, um yeah, when I when I order Uber Eats at some point and Uber Robot turns up, I'm going to think of you, James. Won't be far in, you know, off. Won't ten, be far off. Ten years time. <laughs> um, what sort of real world problems are we designing robots for at the moment? I guess there's a few different areas, and I, I would class auto the automotive sector as one mm. of those. So if we talk about cars, that you know, there's a lot of research and a lot of being, money being spent on that autonomy of, of cars and mm. once again we, we probably won't see uh, people owning cars maybe as much in the future because you'll walk out the front a car will pull up you'll hop in and it'll take you to where you want to go without a driver in without there. a driver yeah yeah so you know uber <laughs> we mentioned uber before they're spending a lot of money on that and that's certainly really? their, that's certainly their goal so uber will of, just buy cars instead of having you know, or yeah. having to employ yeah, that's, drivers. That's or even their business model is they're using people one three now. cabs if you're listening. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. They're using people now because the technology isn't quite there, mm. but they're investing heavily and that's their business model is to uh, to have autonomous vehicles. I guess the other thing we're seeing a lot of prosthetics work and a lot of work around rehabilitation of, of injury and um, people that are, have accidents and hopefully we won't see as many, I guess, if we've all got autonomous vehicles. But uh, yeah, that's that's another big field, I guess. Bit of a change of pace here. I read in your bio about the idea of human in the loop and human on the loop. What is this? Yeah, look, I'm I'm not sure which bio you're reading, but uh, <laughs> that, that sounds pretty dry, doesn't it? Uh, now, this is a really cool sort of concept that came about from from one of my bosses, actually, Professor Said Nahavandi, around understanding how we control robots and how we interact with robots. So human in the loop is where you're effectively controlling, and to use your analogy before, a radio control car to drive it over to the fridge or you know, drive a robot over to the fridge, open the fridge door, grab the, the sandwich ingredients and, and, and put it together by telling it how to control it with, with a joystick effectively. Whereas human on the loop is giving a high-level command, sort of saying to the robot, much like Google, uh, voice assistant or you know, Apple, on your, on your phone, Siri, um, you know, please send something to go and make me a sandwich. And <laughs> the assistant knows what kind of sandwich you like. It goes to the fridge, finds out what it's got in there and tries to make the, the, the best sandwich that makes you happy, yeah, I guess. Wow. So that's that really artificial intelligence linkage where, you know, it's 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 looked at you over the past, the, the, your entire life effectively and understanding what you like and um, taking those voice commands to go and uh, to go and do something like that. Yeah, and I guess there comes a bit of a social aspect. You know, sometimes we talk to inanimate objects as if they're real as as well, you know, these and these things are going to be talking, moving, doing things well, for it, us. And that's the scary thing, you know. We, we've got this great relationship with our phones at the moment and, and screen time coming up on your phone and telling you how many hours a day you're spending looking at your little screen is quite scary. So I, Mine I'd is like very to, scary, <laughs> yes. I'd like to hope that we can... Um, 
free up some of the mundane tasks with robots and allow more time for people to actually talk to each other on a, at the personal <laughs> level. You haven't got anyone there, but you've got a robot to talk to. That's very interesting too, isn't it? Yeah, certainly. And we're seeing that we've got a lot of ageing populations around the world and Japan's certainly one of the biggest and, and there's a lot of research going on into robot companions. So being able to have a robot there that you can talk to, that you can interact with, and it, it might not be a robot person, it might be a robot pet effectively. Yeah, But okay. they're, they're listening to you, they're, they're, they're gesturing, they're, it, it comes across that they're understanding you but they're giving you that sort of companionship. Yeah, and like a robot dog, I guess, if you forget to feed it or, you know, you've locked it inside with no water or yeah, something like that. Yeah, it probably won't through the door. It's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not going to matter a whole lot, I guess. Um, Robots have feelings too. Yes, you know, yeah. uh, that's what I'd be like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's your tagline, yeah, robots yeah. have feelings too. <laughs> what are the main ethical concerns with the future of robotics, do you think? Well, look, certainly the, the military aspects of robots is, is quite a scary one and, and there's been a lot of uh, research and, and, and government-level discussions around the use of robotics for warfare. Um, we stay on the very humanitarian side of robots for you know counter-ID work and, and bomb disposal and things like that, but there's certainly the technology exists now for robots to make the decision on whether to, to pull the trigger effectively or not in the war zones um, mm. and you know governments certainly don't most of the governments in the world certainly don't want that kind of technology to, to exist and mm. that's when we talk about that human in or human on the loop. Um, these kind of decisions in warfare certainly should should rest with the person. Mm, that's a little, okay. little bit deep and serious, isn't and it? And do, <laughs> do you think there are countries that have these sort of military military <laughs> weaponry ro- robots already uh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. They, they certainly exist now and and, mm-hmm. and um can be placed in an area to deny the enemy entry into that area mm. and, and make the decisions on their own about whether to shoot or not and, and that's quite a scary thing how are robots going to help us in the future or helping us now in particular with things like you know earthquakes or mass disasters yeah, I think there's probably two um, answers to that. One's the healthcare, and we spoke about the ageing population before. We're mm. going to need more people to help help people around. So whether it's um, assisting lifting, helping people shower, helping look after people or as a, or as a companion, there's, there's certainly a lot of work going into that space. And, and the disaster of relief is certainly an exciting one as well. There's a lot of research happening in robots that can, uh, snake-like robots that can crawl into rubble and... and uh, you know, get towards yeah, wow. um, trapped looking people, for people, looking yep. for people, small swarming robots, robot teams that can help lift things, um, so robot ants and things like that. So there, there's a lot of lot of research happening in that robot space. Robot ants? Cool. Yeah, so, you know, an ant can lift, you know, what is it, 20 times its own body weight, whereas, um, you know, when we get to that with robots, we can send them into rubble and lift heavy things off people and, and, and really working together as a team to, to accomplish a goal. Unbelievable. Robot ants. There you go. I've learned about yeah, that today as well. We're probably well. <laughs> not quite as small as an ant yet, but um, one day. And can you see any, like foresee any issues with having uh, a future full of robots? Oh, look, I think we, we need to be very aware of the social implications of, of robots, I guess. Um, you know, much like, as I said before, we're spending too much time on our phones. We, we just don't want to spend too much time with our robots, I guess. Um, <laughs> Yeah, 
it is a slow burn robots and and you know i think if you look back into history in the 70s and 80s we probably thought most homes would have a robot in them now doing all the stuff that we don't want to do uh we're still a fair way away from that i believe uh probably 10 to 20 years mm. but you know i think that's probably the biggest thing the social impact uh, i think when robots came into manufacturing everyone assumed that um, we'd lose a lot of manufacturing workers and that's not generally the case. The figures sort of show that the, the trades change and we put the robots into the dirty, dangerous jobs mm. and, and we, it's, it's a changing population. We talk about the percentage of people that won't be doing the job they're doing now in, in 20 years and it's quite high, but there's going to be plenty of work to do. So we, we, we need to be mindful that robots aren't necessarily scary and going to take all, of, all our jobs away. <laughs> what sort of jobs in particular do you think they'll be um taking over first probably podcasts i'd say yeah. so, <laughs> so mine's all the podcasts no all uh, the robot podcasts yeah <laughs> um, you know look i think um you know we, we've got a, a population that's getting bigger and bigger and bigger and and we're going to have to push more robotics into farming i think that's mm. probably a big area um, you know, farmers still need to make the decisions, but they can probably send some autonomous tractors out there doing some of the work, um, and, and that's starting to happen now. Yeah, we I do. Guess. We already have the headers, I guess. Yeah, that can yeah. you know? And via generally, GPS. we still have a person in them, but in yeah. the future, that won't be the case. The, the farmers will be able to go and, and do more of the other things that they need to do around yeah. the property. So, so and just send the header out to. To do the harvest, exactly. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So we'll plow the fields or do yep. do the seeding, whatever the it cow. is. No. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're seeing robotic <laughs> dairies already. Yes, they haven't yep. really taken off, I guess. But you know, we will see that we're freeing up more time from that monotonous work that perhaps um, you know can lead to injury due to you know people falling asleep potentially. I guess. So, what's one thing you'd change or put in place now to stop some of these issues happening? So I guess I've uh, I've watched all the movies about what can go wrong and, and we need to make sure that doesn't happen. So for our, our people out there that watch Terminator, we certainly don't want that. <laughs> uh, we need to be very careful about our laws and ethics around use of robots in the military and, um, you know, we don't want to get in a situation where we've got robots deciding to pull the trigger effectively. That comes down to law enforcement, military, whatever. Mm. Um we need to make sure that our robots uh, are following certain laws of robotics, and and you know I think most roboticists go back to Isaac Asimov and and his three laws of robotics around, you know a robot shouldn't hurt someone, a robot shouldn't um, through inaction hurt someone. We we just need to make sure that we're we're following those rules and that governments uh, are legislating that you know effectively there's no autonomy or automation that can endanger people. Mm, and how do you sort of enforce that? Is it through government laws? Like obviously yeah. in, a, in Australia it's sort of, I guess, easy, but in other countries it might be a little bit harder. Yeah, look, it's got to be. And, and there's, a, there's a heap of robot ethicists uh, and government agencies working together in this space at the moment to try and make sure that we're not introducing robots into warfare mm. uh, that aren't you know, potentially going to... Um, make that wrong decision and we want to make sure that people are in the loop or on the loop at all times in these decision-making processes. Now, James, we've got the fast few questions for you now. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's go. All right, let's strap in. So the first thing that comes to your mind, um, just give us your uh, quickest and first answer. Sounds dangerous. So (laughs) what's the best piece of advice you've been given on your path to success? 
Look, uh, I think it's just uh, do what you enjoy. Uh, I sort of came out of nowhere from a small town um, into the robotic space. I wanted to build robots. I'm not sure why, but uh, I came in and did an engineering degree and loved it. And it, you've got to do what you enjoy. If you if you enjoy working with wood, go and be a woodworker. If you enjoy building robots, go and go and do a degree and, and learn how to build robots. But but don't go into a job that you don't like. If you could recommend one book to the younger generation to get them on the right path to ensure our Earth's future, what would it be? One book, <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess I started off as a probably three or four-year-old with a little picture book of robots from the 19, early 1980s, probably 70s, I guess, and, and that's what got me into to robots. Um, I loved reading as a child so I wouldn't recommend one book I'd recommend all of them go and read all books and (laughs) (laughs) find out what interests you but one book I yeah I'm not going to answer that (laughs) excellent read all the books all of them yeah (laughs) and James if your life was a movie what would it be called and who would star in it yeah that's a fantastic question (laughs) it's uh yeah I'm I'm a big Avengers fan at the moment oh me too love it I think it'd have to be, um, yeah, am I allowed to say Robert Downey Jr. or something yeah, like that? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Iron Man, he's a robot, yeah, isn't he? Yeah, and yeah. no spoilers. I can't talk about the latest movie, can we, yet? Well, oh. Yeah. No, nah, anyway. Oh, you know what? We probably can. No, nah, we but better not. No, we, we better, better not. not. Okay. Yeah. I've but, already uh, look, seen yeah, it. And, and what would it be called? Uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> is that the name? Yeah, I'm prob- not sure. Probably. <laughs> I, I guess, you know, my motto in everything I do is is fail fast, fail early, make mistakes and, and move on from them. So, you know, just just have a, have a crack at something in the robotic space or, or whatever you do. Um, you know, do it safely, but try try something new, and that's where all the invention and innovation comes mm. from. Is, is having a crack at something, um, finding out what goes wrong, and then and then moving forward. Wonderful. Well, I have learned so much in this episode. Thank you so much for joining us today, James. It's been an absolute pleasure. Lovely to be here. Thanks very much for your time. <laughs> Thanks, James. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, make sure to review, subscribe and share with your friends.